We are nearing the end of the book of Acts. And, uh, and, and this week it's Acts 27, which is uh, a long story, really, a, a long narrative piece. And I think to get the full flavour of the story, we, we have to read it all. So uh, I'll, I'll try not to take too long, but uh, let's kind of sit back and, and relax and, and make yourself comfortable and, uh, and, and enjoy the story. When it was decided that we, and, and that is uh, uh, Paul and, uh, and, and Luke, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some of the other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Madrantium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in uh, Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving at Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete opposite Salmoni. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. There was a harbour in Crete facing both southwest and, and northwest. That was Phoenix. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cowder, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. And when the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and, and uh, let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. 
You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land, they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. And then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. And then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. And when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing grain into the sea. When daylight came, they didn't recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move. The stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. And the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out that plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest were to get there on planks and on pieces of the ship. And in this way, everyone reached land in safety. That's a very dramatic story, isn't it? This is a a long narrative. And many have uh, discussed why it is that, that Luke spends so long at the end of the book of Acts telling this story. And, uh, you know, I, I think there are two reasons. I, I think partly it's because Paul, Luke has rejoined, rejoined Paul at this stage. So, uh, whereas for much of Acts, Luke is working from eyewitness accounts, here he, he has a first-hand account of, of this dramatic encounter. And then also, it's, it's near the end of the book of Acts. And, and actually, it was very close to the time when Luke would have committed pen to paper and actually written the, the book of Acts. And I think it was just fresh in his memory. And, uh, and, and so we have this narrative account, but actually we have much to learn from it as well. You see, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of immense chaos, there is one strong voice and it's, it's the voice of Paul, and, and his message is one of courage. And, and he uh, exhorts the, the people on the ship to keep up their courage. Now, courage is the quality of mind or spirit 
that enables a person to face difficulty or danger or pain without fear. And there are many things in in the world at the moment, aren't there, that are inciting people to fear. There's there's all the the financial situation. There was an article in the Daily Telegraph recently, uh, which started like this. It started with a quote. I don't really understand it, and it scares me to death. These comments came from an experienced banker in London's financial district. Fear is now stalking the city. And if that's the, the quote in the, uh, the, the newspapers, we actually see that, don't we, in, in people. Genuinely afraid. What's, what's going to happen to our finances? And if it's not economic fear, financial fear, then it's, it's fear of illness and, and even death. They were saying on the news this week that they, they think top estimates 65,000 people might die of swine flu. And it induces fear in people. It all amounts to the same thing. It's people thinking, am I really going to be okay? Is disaster looming just round the corner? And, uh, and, and if we don't get hold of these thoughts, then they, they can lead us, even as a society, into a, a downward spiral when you get to the place which these people had. In verse 20, it says that they had given up all hope of being saved. Now, these things can affect unbelievers and Christians alike because we are all in the same kind of situation. We all live in the same world. We all face the same challenges. And it's not just finance and swine flu. There are many challenges that that can come into your life. Maybe even attack or or periods of uncertainty or, or, or change. And yet God exhorts his children to take courage. Have that quality of mind or spirit that enables you to face difficulty without fear. And you might be thinking, yeah, but but actually life is quite hard. Actually there are challenges. Is, Is God going to see me through? But you know, there is genuine courage for a Christian. I believe the reasons why we can be confident are are laced through this story that that we read of Paul in the the shipwreck. So let me uh, make some some comments to you. Firstly, I think in these sort of times of uncertainty and challenge and change, we need to put our focus on God. One of my favourite verses in, in times of trouble is uh, is Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. As as God's children, we lift up our eyes and put our focus on him. Paul had no doubt about the nature of God he worships. And he said in verse 23, last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid. Paul had an awareness of God, not just an awareness of kind of who God is, but also his position in God. He described him as the God whose I am, which is quite a mouthful. But he didn't say, uh, 
he didn't say, you know, my God, you know, the God who is mine. No, he said the God whose I am. You can have a view of God that, that is kind of like, you chose him. You know, he's my saviour. He, he's mine. It's like you keep God in, in your pocket somewhere. And, and you bring him out occasionally. But Paul didn't say, my God, an angel of my God. He said, the God whose I am. You see, primarily, as believers, we are his. Don't have a view of God that he's in your hand. Rather, have a view that you are in God's hand. Do you have one sort of compartment of your life into which you invite God? Maybe it's your Sundays. Maybe it's certain relationships that you have. And you say, yeah, God is welcome here, but, but not in this part. Not in this part of my life. Or do you see everything you do and everything you are as submitted to him? Revelation 5 gives us a picture of what's going on in heaven right now. If you want a true perspective on the world and and on world history, it's a good idea to go to Revelation. I love Revelation. And uh, when you read Revelation 5 you see this description of Jesus on the throne. It's happening right now. And all the inhabitants of heaven are crying out in praise and worship. And it says they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, with the blood of Jesus, he bought you. He purchased you so that you could be with him. It cost him everything because that's how precious you are. But God does not belong to you. You belong to him. He's purchased you with his blood. And praise God that that is the case. But Paul didn't just say the God whose I am, he also said, and the God whom I serve. You see, the first statement of Paul's was positional. It, it, was, it was just true. It didn't depend on the circumstances. And uh, if you're a Christian, then, then it is true. You can say he's the God whose I am. But the second statement was Paul's choice. And he said, no, he's the God whom I serve. And the second statement flows from the first The choice to serve God flows from a realisation of who God is and that you are his. And uh, serving for Paul was was very practical. It meant giving up his whole life for the proclamation of the gospel, for planting of churches and, and strengthening churches. 2 Corinthians 11 uh, gives a, a wonderful description of Paul's life in service to God. He's, uh, he's comparing himself to false apostles. And he says, are they servants of Christ? And he says, I'm more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And that doesn't include this one we've read about. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move 
I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my countrymen, danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I've laboured and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked and beside everything else I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. And you read that and you think, why? Why would he give up so much? Why would he make his life so difficult? Well, it's because he saw the God whose I am. And there also would have been much of the kind of mundane in Paul's life. Hours sat travelling. Hours sat making tents and, and, and just kind of earning his, his way. Thinking, why am I doing this? He thinks, oh yeah, because I, it's because I'm God's. It's because he purchased me. Well, what will you do to serve your God? Is he the God whom I serve? Will you stand up for, for the name of, of Christ in a, in a crowd? Will you minister to his body, the, the, the church, taking care of one another's needs? Will you give up your time and your, and your money and your effort to contribute to, to the work of the church, which is Jesus' body, which is the ark that, that, that Jamie so helpfully brought that picture? Is he the God whom I serve? We, we need people serving in this church in all manner of ways. Just about every area you can think of at the moment is thinking, oh, we just need more people. Security and catering and welcome team and, you know, you name it, we, we need people. I think BSK at the moment, let, let me just talk about that for a second. Um, this, is, this week is Tasha's last week of being involved in, in a, a big group week for, for BSK. And she changed his job at, at the end of August. And, uh, you know, obviously that, that creates... Uh, <laughs> problem, an opportunity to, to redo the way we, we are leading and running BSK. Rose herself, bless her, puts in so much effort and uh, I, she knew I was going to say this, but I just say, you know, she won't be doing this job forever. And we need to think about how we, we uh, raise up leaders for our kids' work. And uh, we, we're going to need people. Not all the jobs we need in BSK are to do with uh, interaction with children, I think we need people to, to, uh, to just work with rotors and programs. We need creative people to, to deliver resources and, and sets and, you know, all, all that kind of thing. Please be thinking and praying. Can you say, oh yeah, he's the God whom I serve? But, you know, don't serve God if it doesn't flow from the first statement. He's the God whose I am. Therefore, he's the God whom I serve. We must understand that, that we, it's because we are God's. It's because he has purchased us that, uh, that we serve him. Make it a work of faith, not a dead work. So Paul in the storm knew God. And he knew how he related to God. It lifted his eyes up from the circumstances to see the God who he worshipped. The second thing that Paul saw is that he would not be lost. And he could make a statement to the whole ship to say, you will not be lost. 
only the ship will be destroyed. So Paul confirmed to everyone that they were going to be shipwrecked. And uh, that was probably not that comforting to hear. Oh, so only the ship will be destroyed. Oh, that's okay then. No, I think that was probably uh, still pretty scary. But through it, he could say, but you will not be lost. God may not remove from you the causes of fear in your life. But he does give you a bigger picture. It gives you a bigger perspective. And that bigger perspective is total security in him. The ship may be destroyed. You could even lose your life. But you will not be lost. So the real basis for your courage as a Christian is knowing God and your place in him. It's also knowing that you will not be lost. Your position in Christ is secure. And that's the wonderful outworking of the fact that you are owned by God. You see, I tend to lose things that I own. There are a few things that cause me more frustration than when I lose something or or mislay it. Because I think, how could I be so stupid? And uh, actually, what what makes me even more frustrated is when Ali loses things. Because at least when I lose things, there's like a rational, reasonable explanation. Whereas when Ali loses things, it's just careless. So, uh, when I like to lose things, I can actually lose pretty much anything. Even things that I thought were really precious. I think, where do I put that thing? Do you know, I don't own God. I can't lose God. He owns me. I am his possession. And he will never lose me. Praise God that that is the case. There are many who would ask, but what if I fall away from Christ? What if I turn to sin? Can I lose my salvation? And that's a a subject that, that is debated even amongst evangelical Christians. And and there's a danger of playing kind of scripture tennis with it and saying, what about this verse? And what about this verse? And it's important that on a subject like that, we we have the whole council of scripture before us and we we understand God's heart and, and we look carefully at what his word says. My conviction is that once you are saved, there is nothing that can change that fact. You are saved for eternity. And uh, I, I don't have time to do that full Bible study for you. But let me give you two key verses. One is Jesus' words himself. In John chapter 10, he says this. This is up on the screen, I think. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. That, it says, what it means is they shall certainly not perish forever. Is an expansion. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Praise God indeed. Let's look at Romans 8 verse 29 to 30. 
It says this, for God, those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God looked from before the creation of the world and he saw those who would be saved. And for every one of those, he put a plan into place. He predestined them. And that speaks powerfully about God's sovereignty in salvation, in fact, in all things. And God is sovereign because every one of those with a plan gets to a point in their lives where they receive a call from God. And that call is irresistible because God goes on to justify every single one of them. Those he calls, he justifies. That's to say they're made righteous by Jesus' death on the cross. Their sin is dealt with and, and they are made righteous and pure, justified before God. And finally, every single one who is justified is in effect already glorified. And this will happen when Jesus returns. But it's so certain that Paul writes of it, even in the past tense. Those he justifies, he glorifies. So when God saw everyone who would be saved, a chain of events was put in motion that ends unavoidably with those same people living a glorious eternity with Jesus. Scripture doesn't offer any alternative outcome. And when a person is saved, he cannot fall away. Now, we don't know who is going to be saved and who isn't. We can't tell that. And so we preach the gospel far and wide. We preach the gospel to all that that some would be saved. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, and you might be thinking, well, does it include me? Am am I on the list? Am am I one of those that, that God has chosen? Well, can I just tell you this? Nobody has ever been disappointed. And nobody will ever be disappointed. Nobody comes to God and and says, am I on the list? Are you going to justify me? And God says, no, 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 you're not. It's never happened. And it never will happen. So if you're here this morning saying, well, I hope it's me. I I hope God foreknew me. I I hope he put a plan in place in my life. I, I hope he's going to justify me. Then I can tell you that he has. And he will. Because you are calling out on the name of Jesus that you would be saved. For the Christian, the ultimate threat of death has gone. And this is the real reason for our courage. Paul said, not one of us will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. And the devil may scare you to death. He might even bring you to the point of death, but you will not be lost. That leads me to the last, last point. There is in this story, nonetheless, a call to, to uh, live wisely. A call to, to common sense. You see, God had told Paul that he must 
stand trial before Caesar in Rome. And he did that in Acts 23, and he does it here in, in this story. He'd also told Paul that all the lives on the boat would be saved. He said, not one of you will be lost. It was the promise of God. Now, that's probably good to know. You can imagine that that gave Paul a bit of courage and and made him feel better. He suddenly had the bigger picture. He saw how it was all going to pan out, and, uh, and, and I guess he was quite pleased. But, you know, he didn't sit back and get all passive. His outlook wasn't all kind of, oh, well, that's good, we're okay. Let's just see what happens. He didn't get all fatalistic. You know, it's going to happen anyway. God's going to save us. I don't know how, but he said he will, so that's okay. That's not what happened. In fact, there are two very interesting events. First of all, on this boat, you've got to realise there are sailors and there are prisoners, of which Paul is one, and then there are soldiers who are looking after the prisoners. Now, the sailors, who kind of know about this kind of sea and wind and boat stuff, they begin to think, if we get into the lifeboat, and get away, we'll be okay. Because we know what we're doing. We'll forget about them, we'll be alright. And Paul alerts the centurion to this and says, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Now the centurion might have thought, hold on a minute, you said we would all be saved. What, what, are you, are you now not so sure? Have you suddenly got doubt in your mind? And then in another action that demonstrates Paul's tremendous care and compassion for people, he realises that they're all getting worn out and and, uh, the constant adrenaline and and lack of food and and, and they're beginning to get all faint with hunger. And he says, look, I urge you to take some food. And he says, you need it to survive. And I thought, yeah, I thought we were all going to survive. Now you need to eat to survive. God is not slow to make promises to his children, but he still looks for action and obedience and and sheer common sense. If you are saved, you will not be lost. But he wants you to be fully engaged with your Christian life and the the things that he's called you to. Your life might be in a a storm at the moment. It might be in a season of, of change or or stress, or or attack, or or just plain uncertainty. and You don't need to fear, because God's got hold of you. He'll he'll keep hold of you. But that doesn't mean that you just let go of the reins of your life. With a kind of fatalistic kind of passivity. Oh, God's got it under control. Never mind, it's fine. Now, like Paul, you need to take steps. There's a call here to, to take steps. First of all, you need to take steps to keep yourself from sin. And I love the the decisive action of the soldiers. This is first century diplomacy. They they don't go up to the sailors and say, look, I I can see you're trying to escape. Can can we just talk about it? Can we just see if there's like a middle ground? Can we negotiate? No, they get out their swords. They cut the ropes that are holding the lifeboat. It crashes down into the sea and and floats away. No lifeboat, no issue. (laughs) End of discussion. We we need to deal with sin in the same way. Don't accommodate. Cut the ropes. What ropes do you need to cut 
in your life. Maybe it's bitterness, unforgiveness. Maybe you're being dishonest with people who have put trust in you. Then in our society, there's always the huge problem of of lust and sexual sin and and pornography. Don't negotiate. Don't, Don't look for middle ground. Cut the ropes. Just cut the ropes. Make it impossible. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's a dramatic statement. It's saying, look, do you understand the seriousness of sin? Do you understand the implications? Don't negotiate. Don't, don't see how close to the line you can keep. Cut the ropes. Let it go. Don't just resolve in your mind to change your behaviour. Actually take steps to keep yourself from sin. And then also you need to take steps just to look after yourself. Paul said, God will save us, but you need to eat. God has got hold of you, but you still need to press into him. You need spiritual food. You need to take God's word, the Bible, and and read it and, and apply it to your life. Don't try and live your life with a kind of empty spiritual tank. Don't run the tank dry. Keep coming to God for fresh encounters of his presence. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Grow in maturity. Paul says, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And when Paul got to the end of his life, he could say, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. You see, he kept with it. He pressed into God. And and also you need physical food as well. I mean, this isn't just a kind of a spiritual thing. It's it's a whole life thing. Eat well. Exercise. Rest. Look after your, your body. Get a good education. Make godly choices for your future. Build relationships. Floss. I don't know. Look after yourself. Do you know, there is a pressing into God here. You know, we don't let go of the reins of our life. We keep going. We, we cut the ropes of sin. We, we press into good things for our lives. God will save you, but you need to eat. Look after yourself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And the reason that Paul said these things was not because he doubted God. It's not because he lost hope. It was because he had hope. This was the outworking of his courage. And in the midst of a storm, a godly lifestyle is a statement of tremendous courage. It's a statement of sure hope that God who has saved you will keep you for eternity. And you might be facing all manner of storms in your life at the moment. Things that threaten to blow you off course or even completely wreck everything. But the call to the Christian is have courage. The God whose I am and whom I serve says that you will not be lost. Praise God.